Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us here in New York City in the studio, I'm pleased to say, Chris Grisanti, Grisanti Capital Management CEO, our value man, who says, don't worry about Democrats taking the House, don't worry about higher rates, and don't worry about inflation. Can we start with politics, Chris? Why sure, shouldn't we worry about the politics at the moment? Uh, you know, I think almost the consensus view is that the Democrats will take the House. It's very difficult to see them taking the Senate. So I think the market has priced in divided government. It's not like a whole lot has gotten done before this. So I you know I I don't think if come the day after election day we see a divided uh, Congress that it's it's going to upset the market maybe a little volatility maybe some opportunity. But it has been so market positive with Republicans in the house and Republicans running the Senate as right. well. Why does the opposite not apply? Well, we've gotten the tax break. We, we will continue to get lower uh, regulation because that's an executive function. Um, so I, I think that the, the trends that have propelled the market can continue. Of course, the big wild card is if the House is uh, goes Democratic, whether we'll see lots of investigations. But I think the final release of the Mueller report will set that to, to rest one way or another. In terms of the trade policy, the, the president kind of ramping things up again, threatening to sure does, tax right. all imports coming right. from China. And the data over the weekend from the Chinese, the trade data, right. surplus might be narrowing, but with the United States, it is a record. Right. It doesn't look good for the Chinese if they're trying no, to argue with the president and, and they're doing have, something. It's hard to have sympathy for the Chinese in some ways, but but here you kind of do because the trade deficit typically widens, and Tom will be able to tell this better than I, uh, because we're having strong economic times and we just buy more stuff because people have jobs. So the, the deficit would widen. Uh, the problem is that's Trump's major uh, litmus right. test for whether things are fair or not. I don't care about the politics. Here's the reality. We're 10 years on from Lehman. Right. We're only talking to optimists this week that had the courage to stay in the market. How did you stay in the market in April of 2009? Well, we ran to quality, Tom. So you buy... Uh, J.P. Morgan, you buy Goldman Sachs. It, it was the first time, really, in a generation where they were trading bought, significantly what, what did he buy below. Bear Stearns for? Like a dollar? Was it, was it like twenty four dollars? He, like he the bought. Remember, he bought it for two dollars, and then he had to up the price to ten dollars because he got so many complaints about. And you loaded the boat on J.P. Morgan. We did because you know if J.P. Morgan went under, we had a okay, lot. Okay, but John Farrell, what up. was the sweat like in London with Northern Rock? Nobody was loading the boat on Northern Rock, and were they? Good job they didn't. Right, I mean that, that was the story. Exactly. And if you loaded, no, no, no. and if you loaded the boat on RBS, I mean you are still struggling right, right now. That's the difference, I think, between the yeah, United Kingdom and say the United yeah. States. The U.S. did such a much better job right. of recapitalizing the banks than the rest of Europe. And they did. took their medicine early. I think that's right because I think Europe, Europe is still doing that. But we talk and sit here with the benefit of hindsight. Right. When you sort of talk about loading the boat of J.P. Morgan 10 years ago, it didn't seem that obvious, did it? No. I mean, that's why you could do it. Although th there is some, as the boat goes underwater, you head to the highest point. You head to the quality. You could have done J.P. Morgan. You could have done Wells Fargo. And by the way, in retrospect, neither Wells Fargo nor J.P. Morgan had a single quarter of reported losses during that period. Yeah, but did you sell them now? Or do you only own junk now? Do you only own things with five symbols? No, we've sold J.P. Morgan simply because it's, you know, it's quadrupled since then. 
But we've, we own and, and would buy today the Wells Fargo because of company-specific problems, which I think they will grow out What's of. What's the differential in value between J.P. Morgan? What, what ratio do you use to compare and contrast JPM with WSC? We use both price-to-book and price-to-earnings. In both cases, Wells, because of their mix of How much of, business, of a discount? Right now, they're trading almost at parity, but the, the proviso is, Tom, they usually, Wells usually trades at almost a 50% premium because it has a, a more stable book of businesses, mortgages, it, it's kind of bread and butter lending, where J.P. Morgan has more trading. So you can buy Wells. If they get the same historic uh, premium, you'll yep. make 50% on your money. Chris, can we get a quick word from you on Apple? Sure. Big launch later this week. I know you hold the stock. We do. What are you looking for? You know, it's it's funny. We're contrarians, and it's, so it's hard to sit here and defend Apple. But it's just done everything right. It's not terribly expensive. And what we love are two things that people don't usually talk about, which is all the cash that's coming back. And second, the services business, which has gone, it's almost like Amazon Web Services, the hidden gem of Amazon. Here you have the Apple services business where they're selling apps and everything else. And that's gone from zero to almost 10% of the revenue. And we think it's heading to 20 to 25%. The, of the company revealing years. late last week that some of the tariffs coming through will hit some of their products. The president's saying there's right. an easy solution to that. Onshore, um, some of your production. Right. I'm right. sure it's not that obvious for Apple and not that simplistic either, but does no, it mean anything all, to you? Because the, the problem with all this trade stuff is is you have to make multi-year capital spending decisions based on stuff that can change. So no company is going to do that until we get some certainty there. And so that, Jonathan, coming full circle, yeah. that's yeah. the big wild card in this, this market. Do share buybacks and dividend growth support the market into 2019? Or, like, you know, it has, it has, it has. Right. Or will there be a change behavior? Yeah, I don't think, you know, I think it continues to be a tailwind, Tom, but I don't think we need it. I think for the first time since the crisis, we have increasing employment, increasing wages for the first time. So you've got a bunch of tailwinds of which share buybacks are, are simply one of them. Chris Cassanti. Thank you. Great to catch up great. with you. Why don't you bring in James? He is one of the O'Sullivan. most accurate payroll forecasters on the planet. Yeah. Jim O'Sullivan joining <clears throat> us from High Frequency Economics, the chief U.S. economist. Jim, what did you look for Friday and did you get it? Hi, John. Morning. Morning, Tom. Um, well, it was actually a bit, bit stronger on the payroll side than expected, plus on the, on the wage side, obviously, as well. So, um, I mean, they were, they were pretty strong numbers. I mean, obviously, monthly numbers jump around a lot, but... I mean, it's pretty unambiguous that we keep getting something in the in the range of 200,000 a month on jobs, which even though unemployment held in Friday's number is more than enough over time to keep unemployment coming down. Meanwhile, wages are accelerating. Yeah, but Jim, there is this feeling, and I've called you one of the most anchored forecasters because you are, but there are many people out there that say this has got a whole lot more predictable over the last couple of years. Um, wage growth has been pretty stable. Um, payrolls growth has been stable around 200,000 every single month. Can we break out to a higher trend on wage growth, Jim? Well, I think the trend, yeah, has been moving up and will continue to move up. I mean, the, the 2.9% year over year we saw on Friday um, is, is a new high, and that's going to keep on going up. And I think we've seen the same already, in fact, in the employment cost index, which, if anything, is more comprehensive. And the private wage number in that report was already up to 2.9%. So what's the the, Jim, what's the sweat at the Fed? I, I mean, coming off for Friday, which I thought made a nice splash, and, you know, into the weekend, make America great again and all that, What's the level of sweat or the change in the level of sweat at the Fed? Um, well, 
I mean, like everyone else, I'm sure they're they're watching the the trade trade war threats and trade tensions as as, as something to monitor. In terms of the labor market itself, numbers on Friday, um, I think I mean what they're worrying about is ultimately unemployment keeps on falling and the economy overheats. Uh, the unemployment rate at 3.9 is already below the median Fed official estimate of what's sustainable over the long run, 4.5%. And while the inflation numbers right now, and I would say even the wage numbers right now, are pretty much where they want to see them, I mean, the question is, do they stop at these, at these, at these readings, or do they keep on accelerating because unemployment's too low? So I think yes. ultimately, yeah, they're, in terms of the labor market, they're worrying about ultimately this is uh, unsustainably strong. Jim, that Fed staff paper that came out over the weekend at Jackson Hole um, several weekends back, do you think that is the guide? Just follow the unemployment rate. And does that make sense to you? Well, historically, I mean, they've always put a lot of emphasis on the unemployment rate as a key slack indicator. And of course, I mean, broadly, I mean, what, what are the Fed goals? Uh, Fed's goals, I mean, they're full employment and price stability. And I mean, they're defining price, uh, full employment right now, at least, as 4.5% unemployment rate over the long haul. So, yeah, I mean, th- it's, it's never been so simple that the only thing yeah. that matters for inflation is the unemployment rate, but, I mean, it, it's clearly an important indicator from their perspective. Jim, review for us the quality of the jobs being created. I mean, if we make the assumption everybody got 200000 a month wrong because proper job growth was 150, 160, 130, whatever, that marginal job growth that surprised even the optimists, are they good jobs? Um, I think they're probably pretty average jobs on average <laughs> in the sense that you know, some of them are above average and some of them are below average. And I think that's inevitable when you've got 150 million jobs in terms of the level. I mean, half of them are above average and half of them are below average. I'm not just trying to be facetious here, but the, 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 my point is that when you look at average early earnings going up 2.9%, and that's a pure average so, I mean, that's similar to what we're seeing, for instance, in the Employment Cost Index, which is a, a, a weighted index. I mean, this is a little technical, but if you were consistently mm-hmm. seeing below-average wage jobs created, you'd see the average early earnings number, which is a pure average, uh, go up much, much less than the Employment Cost Index, which is a fixed-weighted index. But they're pretty much consistent right now. So the implication is, yeah, they're above-average jobs and they're below-average jobs. But yeah. on average, I mean, the new jobs being created are probably not all that different from the stock of jobs that's already out there, the 150 million jobs that are already out there. Jim, at this stage of the cycle, given where unemployment is, where is this payrolls growth coming from? Um, Well, I mean, it's across the board in terms of sectors, for sure. And it's not as if when you hit the the, the, roughly what full employment is, and of course there's no clear right answer on what full employment is. I mean, 4.5% is in the Fed's estimate for what's sustainable over the long haul. I mean, 3.9 is obviously a bit below that. But it's not as if you suddenly hit a wall where you run out of workers. Um, I mean, at this point of the cycle, then certainly workers are harder to find, and gradually we start seeing the wage numbers drift up. So I think that's the point we're at. And, I mean, certainly over time you would expect, I mean, the payroll numbers to slow a bit just because companies can't find workers. Yeah, but so, I guess, I mean, I think I guess the reason I asked this question, Jim, is because I was told this two years ago. Yeah, although I don't think anyone would have really said you suddenly hit a wall, that you suddenly can't, employment growth goes from 200,000 to No, but they said expected to slow, expected to go down towards 100,000, yeah. expected to go well, to maintenance rates. It didn't. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I would have questioned that. I mean, just because you've hit more or less full employment... And, and again, it's also plausible that maybe instead of 200000 a month, we'd be getting 250 a month right now. 
I mean, if, if the unemployment rate were higher. And there's been a, a lot of stimulus well, in the economy recently. <clears throat> Growth has actually accelerated. And meanwhile, I mean, you are seeing the wage numbers starting to, starting to pick up. So that's where the pressure okay. is, is coming through. Fifteen weeks ago, it was like, okay, this is as good as it gets. It'll taper off. Where have you adjusted your taper now? Have you have you extended this good growth into Q4 and even into 2019? Um, I haven't changed any numbers recently. I mean, I, I've got 3% for the second half of this year, so still pretty good. I mean, I, I don't think the trend is over 4%, which is what the Q2 number was. I mean, 4.2% for the second quarter, but I mean, I've got 3% for the second half. I mean, that said, I, I think the temptation would be to, if anything, go up a bit from, from 3% in the second half. That momentum yeah. looks so good. I mean, last week, obviously, the IS, ISM numbers that came out. I mean, the jobless claims numbers are, are at their lowest since 1969. Yeah. But I do think ultimately, I mean, taper, of course, is the <laughs> sort of a monetary policy word these days. But in terms of uh, growth, I mean, I think the fiscal stimulus will start fading as right. we get into 2019. And I think as the Fed keeps tightening every quarter, that gradually monetary policy becomes less accommodative as well. So I think it's, it's pretty plausible that growth does start to slow by 2019. Jim O'Sullivan, thank you so much for the high frequency. Uh, economics this morning. And now, folks, our definitive discussion today on trade and the ramifications for you. Mary Lovely is always powerful and intellect with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. But the real joy is Mary Lovely combined with her colleague, Chad Bone, and the two of them almost, it seems, writing every other day, maybe every three days, have put out a body of work that I know has made me smarter about the trade debate. Mary, what's the next thing you write for Peterson? Thanks so much for that. Uh, Well, we're particularly looking at uh, just the sum total of what's going on and how it will make American businesses uh, either less competitive in international marketplaces or um, force companies to move some of their operations offshore. I think that's the real challenge that we're seeing right now. We're looking a little longer term, uh, you know, beyond sort of day-to-day movements right. in the market and thinking longer term about competitiveness. If it's make America great again, in a mercantile thinking of the president, or neo-mercantilist, I guess I should say, is it make China weak again? Can the president with these actions diminish China GDP or throw them into some form of recession? Well, it definitely can have an effect on, on China. I think that that the view that the U.S. is is powerful enough to get them to their knees where they will just wholeheartedly accept uh, Trump's demands is wrong, however. Uh, our purchases of their manufactured goods are only about 3% of their total revenue. It's important in other ways, however, to them, and they are always uh, uh, have their own internal struggles that this can make worse. Um, I think... It is an attempt to hurt them to get what we want. Uh, Unfortunately, even if we do hurt them, we won't get what we want, which is some sanity in terms of intellectual property regimes and treatment of our uh, intellectual property and and, uh, technology. This is something that, of course, we share with other countries such as Japan and the European Union. 
With the distraction of trade is you in the combine. I think of Nick Lardy and the rest at Peterson. Does the distraction of trade dramatically damage investment by U.S. companies and particularly U.S. multinationals? Given U.S. multinational now, their heads must be spinning over where the next marginal investment dollar goes. Yes, and there's certainly an attempt by the administration to not have U.S. companies invest in China and, quote, to bring the jobs home. Um, that is a powerful, I think, rhetorical okay, tool. Okay, but, but Mary, Mary, I just set up a new router at my home. Thank you, Netgear. Uh, and it was made in <laughs> Vietnam. I mean, the yes. debate, and, and this is no fault of Mary Lovely folks who teaches at Syracuse. It's not China, China, China. But the, the debate in the media is always U.S.-China, Mary, and you know it's a much richer set of adjacencies. It is, and that's why we're worried about U.S. competitiveness, because there's a, it's a big world. There's lots of other uh, countries out there. If we look at even U.S. operations in China, about 70% of the goods that they're selling are being sold into Asia. So how would tariffs on imports back to the United States Stop those companies from moving to Asia. It won't. Asia is where the market growth is. It's where these companies need to be to make sure that they're profitable uh, and return value for investors. So this bilateral focus of the president keeps him from seeing the bigger game. Uh, Part of that is seeing what our multinationals are doing abroad. The other, of course, is, as you point out, that there's a lot of other uh, low-income countries who are ready to either... Uh, take more investment or finish off the goods so that they come from, say, Vietnam, even with Chinese components. I mean, within the microeconomics are wedges and incentives. What are the incentives now that the president's creating with tranche one of taxes and now tranche two of trade taxes? What is the key incentive there that people have to adapt and adjust to? Well, it's going to raise the price of bringing in intermediate goods to the United States. And so we'll, we'll reorient some, uh, certainly supply chains. As you know, it's possible for them to simply import goods from other countries, other low-wage countries, or we can produce it here at a higher cost. It's essentially producing a production island for the United States, and that will force companies to move uh, production for right. export outside the United States. That's the dynamic that it's setting and, up. And that's really not good for workers or for investors. I'm not going to put out this chart because it's Monday and my brain's fried. I'll put out the link to it. And Mary, this is Paul Krugman. Who, you know, people go mental because Professor Krugman's talking about this, this, or this. This is the Krugman wheelhouse. This is the lovely wheelhouse as well. If you've got a dynamic on the y-axis, Mary, of the price of imports coming in, And on the other side, you've got the units, the volume of imports Mm -hmm, coming mm -hmm. in. You have a demand for imports based on the price of them and the units of them. And you end up in a trade war with what Professor Krugman and you would call a welfare loss. What's the Mm -hmm. welfare loss to our listeners? Well, it's basically that we're going to be forced to pay more for inputs and will drive up the cost of our goods. And people will say, well, that will create jobs. Yes, it will create jobs in the protected industry, but it has to take jobs from someplace else. When I have to pay more for my children's clothing or for toys or for mobile phones, all of which are threatened with the last tranche of Chinese tariffs, that means that I can't uh, 
buy myself a nice dress at the store or upgrade, you know, upgrade my router or buy, or, you know, buy a new car. That means jobs are not created in those other industries. So basically, you see the first thing, oh, there's a job created in protected industry X. What you failed to see is the job that wasn't created in another industry. And those other industries tend to be the export industries that pay more, they're firms that do more R&D, and frankly, they're firms that are going to drive innovation in the future. So we're really just hampering ourselves in the future generation. Beautifully explained. I feel like like this is not like Econ 101, it's like Econ 2 or 3 or 204. But within it, Mary, is the idea of the marginal or the next dollar I spend or the next tradable item. When the president looks at the blunt instrument of car sales, Germany bad, we're good. I mean, the simplistic tone. And that's not a criticism of President Trump, folks. It's just a fact. It's a simplistic analysis. Drag President Trump over to the dynamic space that Mary Lovely's in. Where's the complexity of that simplistic debate? Well, where is the complexity? I think there are a lot of people who are trying to explain this to the president or to make their views heard. We saw many, many companies uh, testifying in the hearings that were held for this latest tranche of, of taxes against Chinese imports. We saw uh, that tens of thousands of companies ask for exemptions from the steel and aluminum tariffs. So the business in the, you know, world is trying to get the message out. This is not good for us. Uh, you're hurting us in terms of the price of the goods that we need to produce in the U.S. Yeah. And eventually it will show up in jobs. This has been wonderful, Mary Lovely. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate uh, your attendance on Bloomberg Surveillance over the last number of weeks. Can't say enough about what they're doing at Peterson. The book is Collusion, How Central Bankers Rig the World. Nomi Prince with us. We've been talking about an international focus there. Nomi, James Diamond wanders in on page 18 in a compare and contrast of the J.P. Morgan Bear Stearns effort with the United States of America government versus stimulus effects and bailout effects of uh, the international economy. From where you sit, what is the state of America banking? Are they truly too big to fail? Um, they remain too big to fail. It's ironic. I actually worked for both of those firms. Um, they're, they're too big to fail because they actually existed on the subsidy. I mean, and the four and a half trillion at the tight now four point two trillion of the Fed, that's the cheap money and so forth. They're able to sort of like bring themselves back from the brink, but in the process, um, the larger banks have collectively become larger. Uh, yeah, there, there was an act that Frank passed in twenty ten that was supposed to ostensibly reduce some of their risk, and as, as Lisa mentioned before, there has been some yeah. leveraging throughout. Um, however, they still remain reliant on that supply of money on the quantitative easing that has propped up um, some of the treasury assets that have gone through them, the mortgage assets that have gone through them, how they're reevaluating and yeah. have over the years those assets up. So they're not as healthy as they okay. look. They've just had more money. But within your book, Collusion, there's no chapter on Canada. What's wrong with the Canadian <laughs> system of like five or six or seven banks? 
Um, yeah, the, the, the reason I don't have a chapter on, on Canada is because they didn't, they didn't really rate in the whole sort of quantitative easing of the rest of um, the, the major G7 countries that, that I that, and plus China that I do look at as the major central banks in terms of, um, of, of creating um, electronic money through this process. Um, so, I mean, they, they, they've had a more stable and, and, and less leveraged banking system to begin with. They, they weren't actually at the um, you know, sort of crux of the crisis when it happened. Emerging markets were, were, were much in pain. Canada was to an extent in pain. Um, yeah, Europe was in major pain and became so because of Greece, because of other debt problems, because of major bank problems and things like Deutsche, um, which continue and so forth. So there were just more problems um, throughout some of the other banking systems. And Canadian banks have been just relatively um, less helped and more stable going into this period. You know, as we reflect on what happened 10 years ago, I have to wonder about the risk that has moved out of the banking system and into the asset management world. And there's been a lot of discussion about this, whether it's private equity firms taking a lot of, a lot of the direct lending to smaller and mid-sized businesses that big banks once did. How concerned are you that that is the next front lines of whatever crisis emerges? That is such an excellent question. Um, it's it's at the front lines because if we have any kind of a, um, unraveling um, through different points of, of possibility, whether that's geopolitics, whether that's you know emerging market debt defaults, corporate debt defaults, we've seen it even in the U.S. Non-financial uh, corporates have almost doubled from from 3.2 trillion debt to 6.21 trillion debt over this period, and so forth. Um, and and these asset management companies have grown on the back of what has been a bull market that has been largely artificially injected by quantitative and the results of that money coming in and, 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 and investors and speculators and these funds looking for returns on the back of that money. So if that unravels, then the returns um, that these growing asset management companies have been producing will start to unravel as well. When debt starts to, if it starts to default, it takes money, therefore, out of the stock market to pay yeah. for um, the liabilities of that debt and so forth. And it becomes this sort of circular cascade. And that ultimately means that all of these purchasers, these asset management companies and the larger ones that have grown, that have yeah. purchased these assets over the years, have to start seeing losses and have to start taking money out, um, you know, for redemptions from some of their uh, customers as well. Right. Well, I, I guess that then the follow-up question is, are any of these asset managers systemically important or is this just sort of uh, the sort of cycle of liquidity withdrawal that happens anytime there's a market sell-off? The reason they're more systemically important than they were, and of course they're not insured. So these, these assets are not, you know, FDIC insured, and there's no, you know, sort of government tied to them. Um, so as a result, that's why they're a bit more dangerous. They're systemically important because they they have bought a lot of the assets. They've been part of, you know, sort of the part of inflating on the mm-hmm. back of the cheap money that's been created. Um, but but we don't necessarily yeah, but, don't have to bail them out. Okay, but Nomi, can't there be a good outcome? I mean, you've been the great critic of the process, the methodology of developed countries solving the problem, whatever the price is down the road and wherever that price travels. But can't there be a, if you and Chairman Bernanke were to sit down together, can't there be a constructive outcome to the financial system or do you just throw in the towel? Well, I have to look at the financial system and the general economies in, in combination, and I think some there there can be solutions and even unwind possibilities to, to what we have. What are now. those unwind possibilities right now? Well, 
Well, my possibilities right now are, you know, sort of rates go too high or, or there's, 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 there's currency uh, protections throughout the world and that basically instills just a, you know, sort of freeze. Um, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a far case scenario because of other factors. But I think you can solve some of that um, by going back to the core of why supposedly this money was created to begin with. It was created to, to basically inflate the economy. Even agreed. Though what it did agree. 100% agree. If we do that, we can defer it to that. We can basically say, look, there's all these debt in different countries, whether it's the ECB creating it, the Bank of Japan, right. the Fed. And, and deflect it, move it to um, more infrastructure, more long-term, more sort of sustainable, and actually follow that money. Right now, if you follow the money, you know, the lines are all the correlation and causation as to the markets. But if you follow it into sort of real uh, long-term sustainable projects, okay. investment, development, so you, you get a more structured um, future. Do you just assume, right. Nomi, do you just assume stronger dollar in this great unwind? Um. The dollar is tends to be the recipient in the great unwind just because of the flight to, to quality, the flight to safety that's perceived in the fact that it remains the reserve currency. Throughout this decade, there has been more movement to other currencies, other trade alliances, and so forth, and some of the trade wars will continue to make that happen. However, the dollar still remains at the top of that pile. So if there's an acute problem, the dollar um, does go up. That said, in the wake of the 2008 yeah. crisis, the dollar uh, got basically creamed right away uh, because of the fact that it started right. in the financial system of the U.S. So it really depends on how it okay. how it also plays out. Nomi, thank you so much. Nomi Prins, uh, all the president's bankers, and she follows with uh, a really terse 250 pages, 256 pages, collusion, how central bankers rigged uh, the world. Very controversial. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.